So let's begin by opening our Bibles to Psalm 148. Psalm 148. I want to go here to help prepare your hearts to receive God's Word today. And uh, I think this will set your minds aright as we enter into the text we will be looking at in a few moments. Let me read the Word of God to you here, Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, we can see very clearly just by reading that psalm, that song, if you will, we can see how, how all of mankind and creation should respond to their Creator, do we not? And that's good to see that. But my question is, when we read that and we see how creation should respond to Creator, my question is, how should redeemed sinners respond to their Savior? The answer to that question is found in the text we're going to be looking at today. Romans 11. Romans 11:33. To 36. Beginning in verse 33, the Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That is a song that we would call a soli deo gloria song. To God alone be the glory. Specifically, though, to God be the glory for man's salvation. Because that's the context from which this song comes. I understand something about this, this portion of Scripture here. Paul pins this song right after writing ten chapters about man's need of a Savior and God's glorious plan of salvation. He has just written five chapters about how a just and holy God can pardon sinners and magnify His justice at the same time. He wrote two chapters about how Christ reversed the curse of Adam and magnified God's blessings to man. And then he wrote 
four chapters about how God chooses to show mercy to the unworthy to magnify His great grace. That's where this song comes from. It comes out of the Apostle Paul's rejoicing heart over all that he has previously written up to this point. This is his response to the revelation of God's sovereign grace. Saints, this should be our response to the revelation of God's sovereign grace in salvation toward us. It's a song of praise. It's a song of praise for God's sovereign plan, His unstoppable plan to save His people from their sins. Let me give you an outline to kind of follow along with me today. This song is about, number one, God's exaltation. And number two, this song is about God's determination. And number three, this song is about our exaltation, our praise. It's a song that was not composed by Paul. It was written by Paul by the inspiration of the Spirit. It's a song that was composed by God. And it was composed by God to produce one thing, praise. And as a result of that praise and the truth that came before what he is praising God about, it also produces humility in us, in our hearts, in our minds, and it changes our lives. Paul was a living testimony to that grace and that humility that he received through this knowledge of God's sovereign plan. The first part, we'll look at the first part here of his song in Romans eleven thirty three. The first part is focused on, number one, God's exaltation and man's humiliation. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. That's a great question to ask because The God that we serve, the God that saved us, is the creator and sustainer of all things. And we can't even fathom how great he is in his judgments and his wisdom and knowledge. Let me give you a glimpse of, I would say a humbling glimpse of God's wisdom and knowledge just in creation in order to kind of help cultivate humility in your minds this morning. Go with me to Job, Job 36, Job 36 beginning in verse 26. I'm going to read down into chapter 37. Let this humble your minds and cultivate thanksgiving to who has saved you this morning. Verse 26, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. For He draws up the drops of water. They distill His mist in rain which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thundering of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. For by these he judges peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his mouth with the lightnings and commands it to strike the mark. Its crashes declares his presence. The cattle also declare that he rises. He's he's just simply unveiling before us the greatness of our Creator here in this text. Lightning doesn't strike this planet without God directing it. Every lightning strike is under the sovereign God's direction. Do you understand that? No. I believe it, though, because the Word of God says it. 37.1 
At this also, my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. The lightning he's speaking of. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And that's Paul's question in Romans 11. Can you comprehend this? Obviously not. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and they remain in their dens. For its chambers comes the, from its chambers comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world whether for correction or for his, for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Now look at this in light of what Paul asked in Romans 11.33. Just look at this great wisdom. Can you fathom this creator? Can you fathom the intricacies of his design and his power? How he works in concurrence, the, the earth works with him. He's working in the earth. He is causing these things to happen. He's holding it all together. And if we can't fathom that part of God's character, his creative power, how could we even imagine we could fathom his electing grace? We can't. Just look at the wisdom of God and his knowledge not only in creation, but in salvation. And let this not just cultivate humility in your heart, but let this cultivate praise in your heart today. Look with me to see that wisdom in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the dunamis of God, the inherent power of God. The gospel is the inherent power of God unto salvation. I don't understand that. That is a supernatural work of God. Because he goes on to say, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Man cannot come to God on their own. You can't just simply make a decision to follow Jesus. God has had to make a decision for you to come to Jesus. He must do the work. He does all of it. He initiates it, he creates it, and he sustains it. Your wisdom, your understanding, your intellect, or your abilities do not get you into the kingdom of God. Christ's blood does. And God chose to send his son in time to obtain his people that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. I can't understand that. I don't need to because the word of God says it and I believe it. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block, he says, to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This makes no sense to the human mind apart from God's illuminating grace by the Holy Spirit. It's foolishness to us. Verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. Just cons- If you don't believe this, just think about yourself, he's saying. Think about your salvation. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Praise God, he saves unwise people. I would have no hope apart from that. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then he goes on to make it very clear if he didn't understand all this to begin with. And because of him, because of God, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness from God is implied. And sanctification from God and redemption from God. And here's why. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul's response to this truth that he wrote at Corinth and the truth that he's writing in Romans, his response to what he is seeing here that God is doing, his response to man's salvation is now the song of his heart in Romans 11. Go back to Romans 11.33. Just look at that again. He, he's, he's caught up in wonder and praise. He's, he's humbled and he's wanting us to have our minds humbled, but he is exalting God in this. He says, just how unsearchable in light of his saving grace and his power on the earth. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, how deep is God's wisdom and knowledge? How deep is it? I mean, can we plumb the depths of God's knowledge? Can we plumb the depths of God's wisdom? Can we find the bottom of it? Is it it attainable? No, we cannot. We can't understand it fully. We can't grasp it fully. We can't judge it ourselves in light of our sinful ability to look at things. We are flawed. We can't see it. But if you're born again, you can rejoice in it. You can rejoice in it. And you should. God's God's plan and His power that's displayed in the gospel, it should produce both humility in us and praise in our mouths in His redeemed people. But here's what God knows about us. Sometimes we, we look into His Word, especially Romans 9, for instance, or Ephesians 1, for instance. We look into His Word and we begin to question God. We, the creature, begin to question the Creator. At times, God's wisdom to us and His purposes produce more questions than, than praise. Sometimes we have doubts about God's power and His plan. Sometimes we, we wonder, why would God save some men who deserve hell and yet not the person next to you that you love in your family that's lost in their sins, who have the same knowledge, who have the same understanding that you have intellectually? Is, is, is it fair? Is it right? I mean, is, is, can, we, can we understand why he would do that? No, we can't. We don't have to, again. 
because his word declares it. God knows, though, that we question this. God knows sometimes it bothers us to think, he saved me, why not my brother? We both grew up in the same household with the same knowledge, the same understanding. God, I don't understand this. Why, why, why did you work this way? Well, he wants us to understand that he knows we're that weak and we ask those kinds of questions. And so what he does here in Romans 11 is, he, knowing our weakness, he graciously inserts a series of questions in this song to quiet our weary minds, our wore-out minds, our, our minds that are drawn toward what we think is right or what we think is just, not what he has declared is right and just in his word. He knows that we struggle like this. And so he gives us these questions to humble our hearts and cultivate praise in our mouth. These questions should actually put to rest all the doubts that we do have about the salvation of others and about the salvation of ourselves. It should put to rest our doubts about God's reason for choosing and electing us for salvation and maybe not other people. It should put to rest that when you consider what God has done and who God is and what he accomplished in Christ. If, if these questions don't produce praise in your heart and humility before God, maybe Ephesians 1 will. Go there with me. Ephesians 1, verse 3. I want you to pay attention to who's doing all the action in the section I'm going to read here before you. The questions in Romans 11, the statement that's made here in Ephesians 1, it should put to rest all our doubts about God's reason for choosing and electing some to salvation. None of us deserve it. Not one of us. And if you're saved, you're going to see why here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In, In love, He says, in love... He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's why you're saved. The last two verses tell you. You're saved according to the good and holy and righteous purpose of God's will to give Him praise for His glorious grace. You should not have to question why others aren't saved. You should question why you are saved and find your answer here. God has chosen to love you and adopt you as his own according to his good pleasure for his holy praise. For his praise alone. But the questions that come out of Romans, I think, will also help you with this. Look with me back at Romans 11, Romans 11, 34. This is the second part of Paul's song. And in this, he's focused on God's determination to magnify his grace. And he does that through this series of rhetorical questions. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now, those questions should immediately humble the believer. And it should not only humble us, it should again produce God-exalting praise and wonder in our minds and hearts this morning. Look at that verse 34a again. Just the question that's asked. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord? Obvious answer is no one. No one. No creature can plumb the depths of God's mind. His mind is infinite. We are finite. God is holy and we are corrupt. We, we cannot possibly understand fully the, the mind of God. No creature even has the inherent right to question the mind of God, our Creator and Savior. That's what we read in Job again. Job 38, beginning in verse 1. Notice how God responds to Job when he asks questions, when questions arise about God's purposes, His power, His reasons for what He's doing. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So God lays Job low right from the beginning. If you don't know anything, who do you think you are coming to me to question me, to question my mind? So then he tells him in verse 3, All right, you came. Here's what you need to do. Pull up your britches like a man. Dress for action like a man. Get ready. Here, here it comes. I'm going to answer you. But I'm going to answer you through a question. I will question you, Job. You make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. This is divine sarcasm, by the way. Or who stretched the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or... Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning? Since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, you know, you're questioning me, but let's see, could you do this? Make the sun rise, or rather, the earth rotate around the sun, that it might take hold of its skirts on the earth, and the wicked shall be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld. And their uplifted arm is broken. Have you ever entered into the spring of the seas or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it. Declare, he says, if you know all this. Declare if you know all this, Job. Are you going to question my mind, Job? You have no inherent right to do so. And, and that, that takes us right back to Romans again. Back to Romans eleven thirty four, part B. Not only can you not question the mind of God, judge the mind of God. Let me ask you this. Who has been his counselor? Who has been God's counselor? Has anyone here counseled God on his creation? Hey, God, I don't think that this is the way it ought to go. Try it this way. No, of course not. Then why do, why do we think that we can question God about how He saves sinners? How do we think we can question Him about how He, he expresses His salvation to those who deserve His wrath? 
How dare we to, to doubt that? How dare we to question that? How dare we presume to say, it's not fair, God. It's not fair. Saints, fairness is damnation in hell, which is what we all deserve. Praise God, He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we cannot earn and don't deserve. Understand something about these questions. He's saying to us by asking these in this way, God does whatever He wills. And whatever He wills is for His own glory. And the really amazing part about that to me is, not only is it for God's glory, but whatever He wills, He also does for our good. He does it for our good because He alone is the measurement of all goodness. God is His own counselor. He is His own counselor. He didn't consult us on creation nor salvation. He does all things according to the counsel of His sovereign and holy will. And we can see that very clearly in Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 13. You know, it's amazing to me. I'm, I'm looking at these cross-references that I have in this message. Ephesians 1, Romans 9, Ephesians 2. We'll get to that later. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a large portion of churches in the United States right now that have never, ever even read these before their congregation. Praise be to God for this opportunity. Romans 13, 9, 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The question is not why he hated Esau, but why did he love Jacob? Jacob was a deceiver. It's not why did he hate Esau, but why did he love me? Verse 14. What should we say then? Is this wrong? That's what he's saying. Is it wrong that God did this, that he loved Jacob and hated Esau? Is there injustice on God's part? He answers it immediately. By no means. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not notice, not on human will. The will is in bondage to sin, enslaved. It'll always choose its greatest desire, and that, it'd be, that would be a sinful one. So it can't depend on man's will or man's exertion, his power, his ability, his, his mind to think, ah, I can do this just through effort and through good works or religious activity. It doesn't depend on that. But he tells us it depends on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You shall say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, this isn't fair for who can resist his will. Then he answers in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does Moldus say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has, has the potter no right, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Just just soak that in for a minute. Just soak that in. Do we, with finite and fallen minds, do we have the right to question the infinite and holy mind of God on matters of salvation? No. We do not have the right to do that. We must simply accept the Word of God and we should be amazed by that. That's Paul's point. That's the whole point of Romans. God alone has initiated a plan of salvation for sinners. He initiated a plan to save us. And that plan is beyond human ability, beyond human comprehension. Because it's initiated by the sovereign God of the universe. And we can't fathom the depths of his knowledge and wisdom. I can't fully understand God's means and power to save sinners. I can't fully grasp that in my mind. You think about when you were saved, you had heard the gospel. Either someone shared something with you or you're at home and you're reading or you're wherever you may be. And for the first time in your life, you recognize your great sin. You recognize your great Savior as Jesus Christ. You called out in faith and you wept before God and repented of your sins. How did that happen? It didn't happen by your ability, your knowledge, or your good works. It happened because of God's grace. He granted it to you to see. He opened the eyes of Lydia to see the gospel when Paul preached. He opened the heart. It is all of God. I I can't fully understand how that works and why everyone isn't saved. But I can understand that God has a purpose for our salvation. To the praise of His glorious grace. I can't fully understand all this, but I can accept it by faith because God's word reveals it. God's plan of salvation is beyond human comprehension. It should just absolutely astound you when you think about it. And if it astounds you, it should then cultivate praise in you. Especially when you read the next verse in Romans 11. Romans 11.35 It should astound you because in our minds, we think that if we made the right choice or if we do the right religious deeds or we do good works, we'll be accepted in God's sight or we'll be saved. But that's not what Romans 35 says. 11.35 says something quite different. It should astound you to know that you're saved apart from your own choice, your own ability, your own good deeds. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. That means if you're here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're saved, it means if you're saved, it is all due to God's gracious choice alone. So just be happy. Just be happy. We should have happy Christians in this place, if you believe this truth. Be happy and quit trying to unscrew the inscrutable, as John MacArthur would say it. Just rejoice in it. Rejoice in this. 
You know, you know personally that you could not have ever saved yourself. You, you could not have saved yourself. You couldn't have offered yourself to God as a gift. You couldn't have said, hey, God, I know I'm of so much worth that you need me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do these things so that you'll be pleased with me and accept me into your family. You know, that's not the way it works. You know, you couldn't do anything to, to offer to God as, as a pleasing offering in and of yourself because your righteousness is as filthy rags. You are dead in your sins. I like the way one man put it on the doctrine of total depravity this weekend. He read Ephesians 2, 1. He says, being dead in our sins and trespasses. He said, how dead were you? You were dead. Dead, dead. That's it. You, you couldn't have offered a gift to God. One, you didn't want to. You're spiritually dead. You're dead in your sins. You are a valley of dry bones. It takes the Spirit of God breathing on you to give you life and to raise you up to praise Him. We have nothing to offer God but our sin and our neediness. That's very clear in Ephesians. Go back there with me. We're going to keep bouncing back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 this time. 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. You were of your father, Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who you were. Does that look like a sweet aroma of praise offering to God? No. That is the smell of the stench of death. That's what you bring before God apart from Jesus Christ. You are a foul, defiled sinner. Rebel against God. Hater of God. You're at enmity with God. A child of the devil. You couldn't bring him a gift. You couldn't offer him anything but your sin and your neediness. The good news is God did something in spite of our condition. He acted. Ephesians 2.4 will go on to say, But God... Right. But God saved you. God saved you. And he did so according to his sovereign plan for his sovereign purpose. That is his glory and his praise. Ephesians two, four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We offer nothing there. We don't bring anything to the table but sin. But he sends his son after us. He raised us up by grace. It says you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's why. Here's God's purpose in our redemption, in his sovereign plan of salvation, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable greatness or riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The gospel's not about us. It's about Jesus and the glory of God's grace. That's what he says you're saved for. It's for Jesus' praise. And the power of God's grace is manifest in that salvation that Christ brings. And he goes on to say in verse 8, It's for by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. 
You don't have to try to figure that out. You don't have to unravel all that. But as you're, if you're a believer, you have to enjoy that. You should be amazed by that. I really pray that, that reading texts like this has not become something mundane to you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the first time that you read this, tomorrow you'll be amazed by this, just as you were on the day of your salvation. Understand something about God's act of saving us here. When you read that, some people want to say, well, you know, God's choosing leaves me out of it. It's like he's making us robots. He's forcing us to come to him. You know, he he makes us willing in the day of his salvation. He regenerates and grants faith. And understand something about this plan of salvation. This is not some kind of cold, calculated, Calvinistic decree from a distant deity. It's not at all. This plan was a costly one. It was a costly plan, and it was given to us by God's loving choice and His sovereign grace by sending His Son to this planet to take our place, to rescue us personally. This is a costly plan. Jesus suffered a real death under God's wrath due to our sins. This is a loving choice that He made, though, to bring praise to His name by His creation. Look on further there in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Does that sound like a cold, distant deity doing this? No. He has lavished this upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then He says in verse 11, In Him, namely Jesus, in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that means to be determined beforehand, ordained, decreed, Decided beforehand, limited in advance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His grace. God God brought about this plan by sending His Son to take our place personally He chose to punish His Son in our stead for our sins so that He ultimately would be praised for the supremacy of His atoning work. It was sufficient. All those Christ died for will go to heaven. Every single one. Every single one. Because God did the choosing. God did the saving. And He did it to make much of the work of His Son. He will not fail to be glorified through the work of His Son. We should rejoice in this. We should rejoice when we read the questions that we see here about God's wisdom in Romans 11. Go back there, 1136. Paul is beginning to rejoice at this point after asking these questions. This is the third part of Paul's song in Romans 1136. And it's a song of exaltation. Exaltation simply means a feeling of triumphant elation, jubilation, rejoicing. In in verse 36, you're going to see why. You're going to see why. You're going to see why I call this section here in Paul's song a song of exaltation. Look what it says. 
for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Are all things. It's talking about our salvation in that portion of the Scripture. And that truth should, should cause us to feel elated. It should produce jubilation in us. It should produce an outburst of praise from us. Because he's saying in your salvation, this is what God's done, and he is the one who gets the credit for it, but he, he will be praised. For he is the one who is in control, and through him all things are coming about for the praise of his glorious grace. He's telling us, when you read Romans, you'll see it very clearly. He's telling us, look, you've been saved by God from God. You've been saved from God's wrath. You've been saved by God's grace. And you've been saved for God's eternal praise. And so Paul begins to praise God here in Romans 11 at this portion. Paul is exulting when he comes to this point of the Scripture. What's interesting, when you read the, the Apostle Paul, every time you come to a place where he begins to talk about the work of Christ and God's redeeming grace, the next thing you'll see is exaltation. He'll begin to worship God. He'll begin to praise God. He'll begin to give thanks to God. And that's what he's doing here. He's breaking out in praise when he hears, or writes rather, the things that he's written here up to this point. He was speaking about the gospel, and now he is praising God for the assurance of the gospel that God will get done in Christ. And he says, it's all of you, God. He's breaking out in praise. When you hear the gospel of your salvation, do you still break out in praise? Think about that. Do you still rejoice, like on the day of your salvation, that you recognize God had saved you? Do you still rejoice... When you hear the gospel preached, the gospel has a sanctifying effect on the saints. It doesn't just save us. It changes us. Because we now know we're, we're saved for the purpose of magnifying Jesus. Wow! Me? A sinner? Foul and corrupt? Me? A wretch? A vessel of wrath? Now, a vessel of mercy. Why? So that... I may magnify the one who gave me mercy, the Lord Jesus. We were all we were all privy pots, as Martin Luther would put it. If you know what a privy pot is, you'll understand what I'm saying here. If not, look it up. We were all privy pots, but now we're trophies of grace because of Jesus. Made to be conformed to his image now in life and in the future so that his work would be praised to the salvation of his people. Now, 36b, Paul ends his doxology here, but it's still full of exaltation. He's, he's taking one more breath of exaltation when we come to this last little bit of verse 36. To, to him, implied here is, to God alone, be glory forever. Amen. So be it. Now, that's where he ends his doxology. But, saints, I want to tell you something about this doxology. It does not end here. It does not end here for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this doxology that Paul is singing about right here, this praise to God alone, doesn't end here with us. It continues on for eternity. All of the redeemed sinners who are brought before him in heaven will sing a song of exaltation forever through our service, through our duties, through our work that we do in glory on a new earth. It'll all be to the glory of God alone. And no sin will hinder us from magnifying the work that Christ has accomplished. We'll sing this song forever. It's the song of the saints, the song of the redeemed. 
To God alone be glory forever. We see that song being sang already in heaven. Revelation, Revelation 5. I think one of the things I want you to get from this is, this is how we will respond not only in heaven, but as Paul explains and shows us here, it's how we should respond here on earth to the magnificence of God's grace, to the glorious work of Christ Jesus. This is not something that we are reserved to do in glory. We are called to do it here presently. If you understand the gospel, if you love Jesus Christ, if you want to honor God, then glorify Him with exaltation every day. Give thanks to Him. Be changed by the truth. Conform to Christ's image. Submit yourself to God's Word. Because you are called to be a song of praise. It starts on earth. Never ends in heaven. Revelation 5 9. There in, in heaven, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, individuals, for God out of or from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. They fell down in response to this awe-inspiring God who's brought them there around His throne to give Him praise. That's the way we should respond. We're gathered here on a Sunday morning to worship Jesus. Not just get knowledge. Not just be taught lessons. We're here to offer praise with our life. And it doesn't stop on Sunday morning. It should continue on every day. You should rejoice in this. When you understand you are saved to glorify God, that's why you're saved. You're not saved simply to get into heaven and out of hell. If your only desire to go to heaven is to escape hell, you have an idol in your heart you need to repent of. You should want to go to heaven because Jesus is heaven to us. He is the greatest joy that will ever be presented in heaven. A lack of wrath and a lack of punishment is not the reason we want to go to heaven. We want to go to do what we can't do fully here on earth, and that is magnify Jesus by honoring Him and serving Him and worshiping Him for all eternity. Sin hinders that here, but not so much in glory. We're saved to glorify God and enjoy Him now and forever. Not just in the future. You can enjoy this glorious God now. You can look to Him and be saved if you are lost. You can turn to Him because if you desire to do that, guess what? That desire didn't come from you. It came from God. If you want to be saved, God will not turn you away because God is the one drawing you. 
in, in heaven, we're going to be singing right alongside these saints here. I think of Philip right now. He's singing this song. Lynn, they're gathered around the throne, singing God's praises, and we will be with them one day. We'll be with them for eternity, with all of God's redeemed. Just think about it. Adam, Moses, Paul, John Mark, Luke, Ruth. We'll be with those same saints in the future, glorifying God together. And, and that truth alone should just, just blow your mind. That God would bring us together in His Son in such a way that it magnifies for all eternity the greatness of Christ's reconciling work on the cross. It's truly amazing. But that song shouldn't be reserved for heaven. It should, should start now. If you truly delight in knowing God and knowing that He saved you, bring Him eternal praise, shouldn't that change the way you respond to Him presently, today? Actually, back in Ephesians 2, one last time, it does tell us it should change us today. If, if, we, uh, if we truly believe that God has saved us to bring Him eternal praise, it should, by God's design, change us today, how we respond to Him today. Ephesians 2.10 tells us why. For all this great salvation He just talked about in 4-8, to eight, this redemption that was costly and loving, and sovereignly given to us. All this is, he's saying, for a purpose. And here it is. For we are his workmanship. His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Live in them. This is what we are called to do now and forever. Because we are his workmanship. We are to praise him. We're to do works that magnify the work of Christ, to glorify Him. And in that one verse there, in verse 10, he says, We are God's workmanship. His poema. His poema. Does that sound familiar? His poem. His poem. We are His song of praise that magnifies Jesus. We are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus to reflect His glory and His grace now and forever. What an amazing gift that is. What an amazing hope that is. What an amazing God this is. Let's give Him praise today. If you would bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we come to You humbled by Your grace and rejoicing in it. For You have done great things things that are beyond our comprehension, beyond our knowledge and wisdom, things that we could not do on our own, things that only your Son could accomplish in our stead. And we thank you, Lord, for that gift of salvation that he purchased with his own blood. Lord, we know that when your Son went to the cross, he went there in our stead. And the life he lived before he went to the cross was lived in our stead. And by faith in his righteous life and his sacrificial death, we are saved by your grace. You favored us when we didn't deserve it. And through his resurrection, you've testified that that salvation is secure in Christ's resurrection. So we give you all praise and glory now and forever as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.